One, two, three, four, five, six. They call it Bajrabazi, which literally means boy play. If you saw or read Khalid Hosseini's The Kite Runner, you know what we're talking about. But the cultural practice is much darker than what could be shown in a movie. Boys are dressed up as girls with makeup and jewelry and fake breasts. They dance for a group of men, often at private parties, and at the end of the night, they're taken home where it ends in rape. As a half-Afghan mother to a young and sensitive boy, I felt really compelled to talk more about this. In the article published with The Nation, we learned that boys are often kidnapped from families too poor to do anything about it. They're traded, they're sold, and they're used in the way that we imagine a slave would be. And as these boys grow into men, they're at the fringe of society with no education, no training, nothing to fall back on, no family to go home to, and a culture where shame and honor are in many ways the primary religion. It is important to emphasize that Bashabazi is unique to Afghan culture. It is not an Islamic practice, but it is residue from a pre-Islamic culture. But that doesn't mean these aren't religious issues that need to be addressed, since Muslims will either justify it or they'll look the other way. And after all, Islam is and always will be what Muslims do. As Muslim Americans who have a hybrid identity, it is really important we shed light on this. And I'm so grateful that today we have with us a service member who served in the U.S. Army, who is here to share their powerful story and experience while serving in Afghanistan. First of all, thank you for your service. It's not easy to consider the sacrifices you have to make and the time away from family, but then you're in a foreign territory and you're facing situations like this with limited ability to do anything about it. First and foremost, could you tell us a little bit more about how and when you served? Yes, I was in the U.S. Army Infantry, and I was deployed to southern Afghanistan from 2012 to 2013. So did you know about Bachabazi going into Afghanistan? I'm curious how you first learned of it and what you saw firsthand. Yeah, they... uh. For, uh, for the training going into Afghanistan, we were taught a little bit about the culture of Afghanistan. And from our sergeants who had been deployed a couple of times previously, they let us in on this dark and dirty secret that we otherwise wouldn't have known about. You know, And it was about these, what they called, shy boys. And it was something that, I don't know, we, we were shocked to hear. And... We really didn't understand the, the true depth of it. We, we just kind of touched on it. And, I mean, it wasn't a focus because we were obviously there to fight the Taliban and not worry about, you know, what Afghan culture was doing. But as we got there and learned more and more about this, um, because it was going on where we were, it, I don't know, shocked me more and more. And caused me to, I don't know, do a little bit more research on my own uh, on the topic. How did you end up learning more and more about it? I mean, if you got preliminary training, did you get supplementary training after the fact, or was it, was it, was it some other way that you experienced it? Um, no. Um, the uh, local police were actually the ones who were responsible for this, and while we didn't see anything directly, um, like that special forces soldier that got in trouble for stepping in. Um, we actually 
you know, it was all like circumstantial. There were, you know, these little boys running around the checkpoints where we knew they probably shouldn't be. And it wasn't until after I got back that, you know, these stories started to come out. And I, you know, started understanding the, the true depth of what was going on here. So those little boys that were running around, I mean, were they were they boys that were free? Were they how did you suspect that this is not normal? Um, it was confirmed by our sergeants, again, who had who had deployed a couple of times previously. You know, it was an ALP checkpoint, which is an Afghan local police. And their job was it was armed defense of the local communities. And that mission profile doesn't include, you know, having little children running around inside the checkpoint. So, you know, that seemed a little strange to us at first, just because we weren't aware of exactly what was going on. But when um, those more senior soldiers started confirming that for us, you know, this is what it looks like. You know, this is how you know. Um, You know, because some of those boys were there later at night then, you would expect, you know, even a, you know, a little errand boy to be. So that was something that, you know, really pointed to that fact. Did they look different? Were they were they cross-dressing as the way that we imagined Bajabaz used to be dressing? Um, I noticed some had, uh, like, reddish hair dye, which is something that we were informed would be a possibility. Um, you know, I, I didn't get to see it close enough. They were still about two or 300 meters away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see them without, you know, a scope or binoculars or anything like that. Uh, and get a very good look. What's what I find surprising in the picture that you're painting right now is that these are boys that are running around. They're quote unquote free in a way that we imagine someone would be when they're just moving freely, but they're so groomed at this point that they that they would sort of magnetize back to their abusers. As, as when they're called or summoned to be uh, a service in the way that they're used and abused. Yeah, they. Um, I, I would think the same thing. You know, they're they're conditioned to do that. They, uh, you know, they're taken from their family, so it's not like they have anywhere to run if they wanted to. You know, they're being controlled by armed men who actually have you know some sort of authority, and again, the backing of you know the U.S. who are, you know, supporting these uh, police units. So did your commanding officers, I mean, you were saying that you, they, you were instructed by them, so it's safe to say that they knew what was going on. Um, I don't know exactly how far up it went, and I, I'm sure, you know, they're all aware to some extent. Um, however, it becomes very political. Um, you know, at the time we were always worried about what, you know, what they call insider attacks, where an Afghan army soldier or, you know, a local police officer or somebody will either sabotage uh, U.S. service members, shoot at them, you know, what, you know, any kind of, of disturbance like that. And we were always worried about the uh, the flimsy alliance that, that existed. So the politics come in where, I know that some of our higher commanders are in charge of coordinating between U.S. forces and local Afghan forces. And, you know, should we go, you know, rogue and, and, you know, deal with the problem as we see fit, 
then that's, you know, that's going to solve one problem but cause a whole host of other problems now that that, you know, military alliance has been broken. Mm. There is, there's, you mentioned stories about where other special forces members took action and there was repercussions. Do you know anything about those stories? Could you share that with us? Uh, The only ones I know of were the Green Beret who actually, you know, stepped in and, you know, beat the guy who was raping the little boy. Uh, The Army actually reversed their decision to kick him out of the Army um, based on the fact that he was actually doing a good thing instead. Um, But that, you know, highlights the issue that, you know, if we were to take action that the military would not have our backs. They would, you know, dishonorably discharge us from the military or worse, send us to Fort Leavenworth, uh, which is the military prison um, stateside. When I when I read similar stories, the one I think that we're specifically talking about is where this, this officer noticed that this Afghan, he was supposed to be an ally, this Afghan police officer, he had this boy tied to the bed. He had him tied to the bed. And so... Seeing that up close is what is what triggered uh, taking action, and if I had to guess, I would say it's the fact that the story hit the media, and there was so much moral outrage over it. That's why, that's probably why he didn't uh, he didn't get kicked out of the military. But that just shows the the immense opportunity that we have to draw more attention to these stories. But from your experience, is this a practice that you would say is more prevalent? in Taliban areas, in traditional villages. I mean, we were talking about how it's really, you know, seeping into uh, into government potentially and into uh, police forces. But did you see this in dealing with the Taliban or in smaller tribal villages? Um, honestly, from my experience, uh, it didn't look like there were uh, any of these kinds of abuses going on in what we would consider Taliban-controlled areas. Um, we would do a lot of patrols through these areas for our, our counterintelligence operations and uh, presence patrols. And it, it didn't seem like that was really going on. The Where we noticed that things were happening were in simply the, the Afghan government positions. And I know that a lot of those um, those guys are from northern Afghanistan and were brought to the southern parts but I'm not really sure um, of any, you know, specific cultural differences there. Um, but I, I can for sure say that it was in uh, the government areas, and I honestly can't can't give you a straight answer on whether it was or wasn't in Taliban-controlled areas because that was something we didn't directly experience. You bring up a good point, though. You bring up the point of cultural sensitivity, for example, or or is this an issue of culture versus human rights. And so there's such an emphasis on cultural sensitivity, whether we are abroad or whether, you know, people are coming from other parts of the world over here. Do you think that's what's at play here? Do you think that's why the U.S. military doesn't take more aggressive action against these heinous human rights violations? I I think it does somewhat boil down to um, a cultural sensitivity, but I don't think that's the, the... main underlying problem here. Um, I really do think it's it's the political aspect um, because, you know, as a, as a culture thing, it's, you know, 
completely disgusting and wrong. And it's something that, you know, as Americans who, who claim to have the moral high ground, some, it's something that we should never tolerate. And I know that most of the population simply won't tolerate. Um, but it comes down to this, this political game where a lot of people's hands are tied. And again, like the special forces soldier, those who, you know, speak out or do something about it, they're punished for it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what can be said about the culture itself. Um, cause I know actually very little about Afghan culture or Islamic culture myself, but I do know that, you know, it's, it's American politics, you know, sticking its head in to where it probably doesn't belong. You know, I was fielding questions from, from readers and audience members on what they wanted to ask you. And there was one really good point brought up by Robert Short, who's a longtime Coast to Chronicles reader and follows, follows a lot of the work that I do. And he brought up a really good point, and he referenced Star Trek, actually. And, and so there was a policy in Star Trek where you don't interfere with the culture of the region that you're visiting. So coming back to our situation here, he, he says, where West, Western forces are involved in stopping terrorism in these nations, we're not allowed to act as moral police for things with which we may not agree with or which we may disapprove of, regardless of how repugnant they might be. We cannot interfere in things which may be culturally acceptable to them, but morally objectionable to the U.S. And that's not his personal view. That's just his assessment of maybe that's why we're not seeing more actions. But my, and I, and I want to get your thoughts on this, on what my response here is. My thoughts on that is just point out no, that, you know, we can't be countering ideological extremism and religious fanaticism in, in what is, in my view, the last breaking point before humanity can really evolve towards what comes next. We can't take on these immensely complex and ideological and kinetic challenges and then say, oh, but these other things don't matter or they're not as significant. When actually these, these issues such as Bachabazi and these, the dignity of children and protecting these uh, human lives is the lowest hanging fruit, things that we can immediately do something about. And I would say that that, that matters just as much as the more uh, far-reaching goals of countering extremism. What would you say to that? You know, I, I I think that the culture itself is something that should be changed. You know, I, I don't know how it can be done because it's so ingrained. And, you know, again, like dealing with ideological extremism, again, that's, you, you know, this is raping little boys. How is that not something that's extreme? And how is that not something that we should be dealing with? You know, they... uh that's, you know, terrorism to the to the boys just as much as, you know, the Taliban setting roadside bombs and, you know, killing a bunch of people during elections. It's, you know, damaging to the psyche. It's damaging to a coherent, you know, society. And it's not something that we as Westerners or as moral agents should tolerate. I absolutely agree. There's a fantastic group on Facebook called FITNA. So it's the acronym is Feminist Islamic uh, Troublemakers of North America. And in there, one of the group members, Medin Mansur Khawaja, was saying that you can kill civilians, but you can't kill a pedophile. And so this group is a little, uh, 
discriminatory towards American foreign policy, but her sentence is really powerful. You can kill civilians, but not a pedophile. And then I've spoken with an ex-Greenway in private conversation who said that the practice is so widespread that you cannot kill your way to a solution by killing the pedophiles, that there are way too many of them. And he went on to share that members of the special forces community were caught intervening and were relieved and were kicked out of the military for acting in conscience and being an immediate solution in the instances of child rape. So the question really comes down to what is the solution? What do you what do you do when local authorities become the predators? You know, that's a, that's really a question I've been asking myself the entire time. Um, and this person, did, you know, did bring up a good point. You can kill civilians, but not a pedophile. You know, how many times have we seen um, drone strikes or, you know, bombing runs, you know, hit a civilian target instead of their intended, you know, Taliban target and with no repercussions where, you know, somebody goes in to actually deal with one of these child rapists and are thrown under the bus. Um, honestly, I, I can't figure out a solution. You know, it's it's cultural, it's political. Um, I, I'm not sure how deep, you know, it goes into Islam, if at all, in the region. Um, but there there really is no simple solution other than, you know, stop who you can and try and prevent, you know, future uh, abuses. What about Americans here? And what can we do when we're so far removed from the problem? Um, you know, honestly, the the main issue is that these local units, these, these local police units are being supported by America, which means they're being supported directly monetarily by Americans. So it it should be known to the American taxpayer that your tax dollars are directly supporting these child rapists. You know, raise you know, raise all kinds of, of you know, issues about that, you know, I don't know, maybe try and, you know, elect, you know, people who, who won't send, you know, monetary aid to Afghanistan, you know, that directly help these people. Um, maybe be more aware of, of, you know, how government is spending your money to assist these local units. And, I mean, these, these the concept of these units in Afghanistan isn't a bad thing. You know, the Afghan people need to organize and be able to protect themselves from the Taliban. But they also don't have to rape little boys doing so. And those people who are doing so certainly don't need American tax money to, you know, continue their their activities. I've, I've always said that Afghanistan, you know, quote unquote, the graveyard of empires, it's, you were never going to see a strictly political or a strictly military solution there. It has to be first and foremost cultural, supported by military and politics. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I know being half Afghan and, and growing up in the culture is that, and I always tell people that Afghanistan, of course, the majority of people are Muslim and it's, it's a really hybrid community of, of different faiths and different histories, but ultimately religion plays a secondary role and its culture and the tribal mentality that comes first and foremost. And so these people are very indoctrinated, not so much in the religion. I mean, Taliban came to play 
very recently, before that, it was it was more of a very liberal society. But even within that liberal society, and I hear these from the stories of my parents living there and my family living there, even though these societies were liberal, that mentality of a very closed shell community was still there. So in my view, it has to come down to culture and really injecting uh, Afghans that have been exposed to the West, who have lived in the West, back into that culture, because there is no way that any amount of money or foreign aid or intervention can impact an Afghan as much as another Afghan can who has been who has assimilated to other values and, and shares normative values with us. But coming back to this idea of these of these relationships, and I've heard somewhere that men when you engage in this practice, uh, men who engage in this practice believe that girls are for marriage and boys are for pleasure. And I read that somewhere and I can't pinpoint to where. But it can be compared to the same practice that happened in ancient Greek culture. And we know that Alexander the Great travel through Afghanistan, so you don't know where this imprint of this culture came from. We also know that Greek culture and various different cultures impacted Islamic civilization and essentially also ended up impacting Islamic theology. So Islam isn't this pure strain of theology that Muslims want to believe it is. If we study it, we know that there's, there are a lot of imprints, good and bad, from, from all over. So in ancient Greek culture, you had this practice of where the women stayed in the home, and their duty was to be domestic and have kids and manage the house. But they were never seen as intellectual equals to men. And as a result, you had these man-boy relationships evolve. So in your opinion, is Bachabazi a practice that you would say maybe is born out of extreme segregation of genders, which is what we see in Afghanistan, reinforced by Islamist attitudes, perhaps about differences between men and women on a, in a very derogatory sense? Um. You know, I, I don't think it, it really has anything to do with, you know, Islamism. Um, you know, just comparing, you know, the Taliban itself and, and the culture that is bred recently in Afghanistan to, say, ISIS, where, you know, ISIS is, is throwing homosexuals off of rooftops and burning people alive in cages, you know, while the rest of the population just kind of stands around and watches, you know, for this, you know, these man-boy relationships to exist in Afghanistan, which is a clearly homosexual type of relationship, like I, I just don't understand how um, religious extremism would would allow for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that possibly the segregation of, of genders and the diminishment of the role of the woman in, you know, as part of larger society probably does have something to do with it. In a way, this brings us naturally to the next point that I wanted to raise, which was gender disfiguration and disorientation. In my opinion, what we see here in the States right now with female genital mutilation, specifically in the Detroit case that exposed 100-plus girls being victims of it, ties into the form of abuse and uh, disorientation and disfigurement that we see happening to these boys in another part of the world. So in a way, it's always connected. And we also see it with how well-intentioned cultures who are trying to be liberal and inclusive are at this point also normalizing blurred gender identities to children uh, who don't even know how to read or write yet. And so I'm curious how you how you see this abuse or crossing borders into different parts of the world. Um, the biggest issue I think I see right now is in America with 
you know, the wholesale acceptance of certain practices from, you know, radical groups in, in the Middle East, you know, again, with this female mutil, uh, genital mutilation, um, that's just, just one practice. You know, I feel like it's being normalized and that the more tolerant and accepting a society is, the more and more we will see things like this. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised um, if the next thing on the docket is to accept, you know, this um, boy rape as natural and as a uh, person's self-identity and, you know, the way they express their sexuality in, in terms of, I don't know, pedosexuality or something like that. You know, I, I think that's the, the next thing the West is, is going to have to deal with, you know, is, is the normalizing of all kinds of out-of-the-norm, you know, sexual practices to the point where this type of boy rape becomes a non-issue to to some of these kinds of people because they've just accepted it as, you know, that person's self, you know, expression and giving no thought to the consent or the self-determination of the victim. Self-determination that they're not even cognitively in a position to be able to make at that age when they're not even neurologically completely developed. And you bring up a really good point about what's next on the docket because I feel like we're already there. We're there with that really controversial conversation that uh, I think there was an older conversation that Milo had about his own identity and his own uh, personal relationship. We've seen various articles that are sympathetic to pedophiles, but more importantly, we've seen uh, dolls come out that, that cater to those needs. And it's just, and I, and I feel like you're right in that, that it's going in that direction. But I'm curious, you were talking about, about how this is what happens when we tolerate or when we accept, uh, I forgot exactly how you mentioned it, but when we tolerate or when we accept different values, or was it, how did you phrase it exactly? Um, just, you know, again, tolerating is, is, a, is a good word. You know, tolerating those extreme types of, of you know, self-expression or, or self-identity mm-hmm. as, as, you know, people here in the West would, would like to call it, where, you know, you and I, you know, would agree that raping a child is not a form of sexual self-expression. It's, you know, simply that abuse and rape and a child cannot consent, a child does not know what's going on, and that cannot be part of their own self-actualization. I would completely agree. And and it comes down to a real fundamental sort of rule of law that I think society needs to be looking at, is you can't self-determinate. You can't be self-determinate, and you can't have individualism to the extent where you are annihilating or marring someone else's reality. So if your need to practice your religion or if your need to express yourself or to be an individual steps on, you know, the toes of somebody else's right to exist and to exist freely without influence, without manipulation, without coercion, without abuse, then, you know, those two things can't mix together. Because if you want to practice what you want to practice, you can practice it, but you cannot cross that boundary. And I think that that really comes down to to a bigger macro issue. So, for example, when we look at religion, you can practice your religion, but you can't force that view on someone else. You can guide somebody else, but you cannot force them to be a certain way. And so 
when we look at FGM, for example, that's a really great example because it's disintegration, it ties in with this, it ties in with gender and identity and uh, self-determination. At the same time, you, the people who are carrying out FGM, now whether it's religious or not, that's something that I've discussed in many articles that anyone can Google, but you can't practice what you believe to be your religion or even an adapted and innovative form of your religion if it crosses the line on someone else's existence. And so that's the real bottom line here, and I think that comes back to the issue of culture. So you can practice your culture, but at the minute that culture impedes on the dignity of somebody else, then you don't get to keep practicing that culture without question and without interference. So I think listeners would be really curious to, to know about your political views. Would you mind sharing that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I consider myself to be fairly libertarian, um, not, not a member of the, of the party itself. Um, but my views are, you know, more expressed in um, the realization and the acceptance of an individual, you know, as the supreme determinant of the individual, you know, where, where human rights and dignity come before anything else, where an individual can determine for themselves, you know, the way their life is going to play out, you know, without others dictating for them. And, yeah, and, and it, it goes into this, you know, it, where, you know, this, again, this boy rape and things, those people, those children are not, you know, able to, you know, be themselves. They're not allowed to, you know, live their lives free of, of external influence. And that's, that's really the core of my belief is just, you know, being able to live out your life as you see fit, you know, without hurting anybody else and without being hurt by anybody else. I think that summarizes our collective identity as, as Americans and more importantly as humans that we need to find these, these I believe it was uh, Benjamin David from Canadian News who defined it as normative values that can transcend identity to a greater collective uh you know, a collectivism. So looking at what essentially makes us human, and I think this is this is part of what makes us human, is being able to distinguish between what's culture and faith and, and what's really an inherent human right. So thank you so much for your, for your generous time today, and I hope to have a chance to speak with you again. And for everyone else, there's an opportunity to interview someone who has actually gone through this practice of Bachabazi. And so I hope we get a chance to speak with him as well in your future. In the meantime, follow the SoundCloud station to get pop-up notifications for the next time we publish a podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Shereen Thank you. Thank you.